Welcome to the E-Commerce Fuel Podcast, your headquarters for building a six-figure-plus e-commerce business. I'm your host, e-commerce entrepreneur and Jeff Bezos wannabe, Andrew Derry. Hey guys, it's Andrew and welcome to the E-Commerce Fuel Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Today on the program, I've got my friend Drew Sanaki, uh, who once again is returning to the show. And we're, we're talking about bold e-commerce predictions. Uh, we're making them rather. Uh, we started off with seven or so, that kind of grew to about nine, but uh, we're talking about what, what we see coming down the pipe one, five, ten years uh, in the future. So um, stick around for that, see if you agree, disagree, it's a, it's a fun discussion. But first, as always, got to do a first sale shout out. And this one's going out to Jemima Jackies of VanityMirror.co. And she writes in, received my first sale and just wanted to say a heartfelt thank you. I bought your training course, The Insider's Guide, and built my store in maybe a month and a half, two months recently. And I got my first two sales this week. Didn't even count the first one as I thought it was some sort of fluke. My next goal, building and qualifying for the e-commerce fuel form. Jemima, congratulations. So cool. Glad the, uh, glad the training helped you out. And it, her site, vanitymirror.co, um, it, it pretty cool, kind of high-end furniture. Um, in terms of design, it looks really nice, Jemima. And you sell some big-ticket items. So in terms of sales, I mean, you've got like there's a $13,000 couch on there. I'm not sure what you sold uh, the first time. I'm not, I'm not sure what your margins are. I'm sure they're probably a little smaller with higher ticket items, but still, you know, a 10% margin on a $13,000 couch, uh, not too shabby. So anyway, excited to hear that things are going up for you and uh, best of luck in the future. Hope things continue to go well. All right, let's go ahead and dive into today's discussion with Drew. Back on the podcast today, Drew Sanaki. This is what, time number three, a full-on regular now? I am a regular. A re- officially a regular. Who, who's your top guest in terms of appearances? Oh, man. Um, you've, been, you've been on three times. Bill has been on a couple times. Uh, Ezra's been on a couple times. I think, I think as of this moment, it's you. Nice. Yeah. I am the, I'm like the Steve Martin of... <laughs> E-commerce fuel. Congratulations, man! Thanks for thanks for making the time to talk shop with me, and it's always fun. And today, of course, we're going to be talking about uh, bold predictions for e-commerce. So this is where we go out on a limb and make some some predictions. Uh, hopefully, hopefully bold in the next you know that we see things happening in the industry in the next you know five five to ten years. So so I'm just going to lead it off here. Prediction number one, and maybe this isn't so bold. Maybe this was a bad one to start out with because some people would be like, yeah, come on, this is your bold prediction. But prediction number one, online sales tax is going to hit us in the near future, a federalized sales tax. I mean, there's, there's been the, uh, what the Marketplace Fairness Act is. It's still kind of languishing. I, I think it got through either the House or the Senate, one of the two, and, and, but didn't make it through the House. I think it passed the Senate, didn't make it through the House. But, but I, I don't know. It's I had a lot of problems with that, and we won't maybe dive into all of those. But uh, so many states are, are in financial, you know, having financial issues, not to mention our, our you know, very financially uh, prudent federal government. I just don't see this happening. I just don't, I don't see how in five years we don't have some kind of national online sales tax. What do you think? It does, it does seem 
almost inevitable. And, and for those very same reasons that just the state and federal governments are a mess. Uh, it's just this, you know, this big juicy source of additional revenue. And I think with any of these things, you know, the, the thing that could, could stop it from happening would be like a one interest gr- group that's getting screwed over that's really vocal. And in this case, you've got an interest group, which is the consumer and maybe the small retailer, but they're so dispersed that I, I, don't, I don't see the consumers or the, or the small retailers getting organized to fight this state by state. So I think it's like an easy win for the states and maybe the federal government. No, but, you know, and, and I think the tipping point for me was when Amazon came out in favor of it, because you really needed like a big company like Amazon to, to stand up uh, against it and take a stand against it. But, but they did just the opposite. Yeah. And I think the only big one, at least the biggest one that I consistently hear about fighting it is eBay. I'll always eBay. get, yep. you know, emails from them saying, saying to fight it. But uh, yeah, when Amazon turns, cause for them, for Amazon, it's like, well, it was really restricting their ability to build warehouses, right? You know, if, if they were fighting it, um, if they accepted it and tried to shape the policy in a way that was most beneficial to them, then all of a sudden they could start building uh, warehouses in states that, you know, they otherwise would have had to say pay sales tax for. And I think they even, yeah, kind of going on a limb here again, but I, I think they would go and negotiate with states and say, hey, tell you what, North Carolina, we'll come into your state, we'll build a huge a huge warehouse there if you give us a five-year, you know, free sales tax uh, holiday or something like that. So, so yeah, so sales tax on the horizon, and hopefully they can do a better job of structuring it. The idea of trying to be subject to hundreds of different state and local municipalities in terms of audits or sending sales tax to, man, even if people spring up to create, create uh, SaaS apps or something. Yeah, some kind of service. Yeah. It just sounds like a nightmare. Yeah, I, that's why I think the bold part of the bold prediction would be on who are going to be the winners and who are going to be the losers. Because I think that, you know, they called it the Marketplace Fairness Act and, and positioned it as something that would benefit the mom and pop retailer or the small online retailer in its fight against Amazon. And yet Amazon's clearly supporting it. I, I think they, they, they know something that we don't know. And, it, and, it, and that thing really isn't, it doesn't require like, a big leap of judgment to, to figure it out. But it, this is just such a complicated thing to administer that you're going to have to administer it based on zip codes and uh, geography and where you're shipping and where you're shipping from that a company like Amazon has the overhead and the tech, the technological know-how to be able to do this and implement this very quickly. It's also a service they can offer to their, to anyone on their marketplace. And I just think, imagine, you know, you or I setting up a store and trying to tackle this, it's going to be a lot harder, even if somebody does come up with, you know, the plugin for Shopify that does it. Oh my gosh. If you're going to do this, do it at the federal level, pay one flat 10% sales tax and let the feds deal with dispersing it to the States. I mean, that's just such a better model in yeah. terms of, in terms of actually execute. I don't know, man, yeah. we're, if I'm not careful, I'm going to get on like a, a government regulation rant here, <laughs> you know, like, like the- <laughs> The e-commerce fuel libertarian. Oh my goodness. I I spent the morning, for a little context, I spent the morning 
calling insurance companies in Maine about workers' comp and dealing with all these the nightmares of trying to hire across state lines uh, for for the new content manager and community manager I'm bringing on. So I'm 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 going to stop it right there. Otherwise, we're going to be yeah we're going to have Ron Paul on the show here before long. Uh, bold prediction number two: If you just drop ship other people's products, you will die a slow, painful death. Uh, Drew, this is yours. What do you mean yeah, by that? You know, and I know you've talked about dropshipping a lot on the podcast, so I don't, I don't think we need to go into depth too much on this one. But I just feel that, you know, the days of going to the the dropship reseller resellers and choosing your products and setting up a store and just dropshipping someone else's stuff are numbered. It's still, it is what it is, right? It's it's an operational um, strategy that can help you out, but it's not a business strategy like our, yeah. and the difference is that, you know, with a business strategy, that's something you build, you'll, you build your business around something that's proprietary or something that is defensible from competition. And I think just drop shipping someone else's product is none of those things. You know, you don't, um, you don't have a competitive advantage with the product or the price often. Um, it's just a way to get started quickly. And I think sooner or later, um, probably sooner, you're going to hit a wall where you just figure out that, hey, you know, all that stuff I learned about competitive advantage, uh, I really actually need to have one. So that's my take on dropshipping. And I say that having run a dropship retailer (laughs) that just sold other people's products. Yeah. And of course, that's my background too. And uh, we'll link up over to the uh, the last episode we did, uh, you know, kind of a candid discussion of dropshipping where where we both get into this uh, pretty frankly, I think, and just talking about, I, I mean, obviously I'm still running a dropshipping store and I think it's, I don't think it's, it's the days are, you know, it's not like it's going to come to a grinding halt in the next, you know, six months, but it's, it's getting harder. Uh, and it's, man, it's just, so you gotta be a lot more careful picking your niche and how you add value versus other products. So I, and maybe, yeah, it's probably category dependent too. I would say modern design, don't do it. I, I can, I can tell you it won't work anymore. <laughs> like Wayfair has sort of, you know, made that an efficient market. Mm-hmm. Maybe in trolling motors, it's still, it's still a possibility. Yeah. Bold prediction number three, mid-sized generalist retailers are going to go the way of the dodo. And, you know, I just kind of look at this and kind of maybe alluded to it a little bit in the past, but just the hollowing out of e-commerce. I really think you either need to be, um, you know, if you're not Amazon, you're going to have to be either small and very niche. So you either had to have a very, very niche selection, something that's pretty unusual around a very you know, a, a, a interesting topic, or you have to have a proprietary product or you're going to be gone. If you're a big, if you're, if you're a middle guy, if you've got huge economies of scale, like Amazon, of course, maybe like um, Hayneedle, like you mentioned, who, who runs a ton of drop shipping sites and they stamp them out and they've got some, I'm guessing some pretty impressive back system processes and automations you can, you can survive. But I think that, that middle ground, I always use I, tiger direct always comes to mind. I just, you know, like kind of these, these larger sites that kind of sell, maybe they sell electronics, but they sell everything on electronics. Uh, it's, I don't know. I think those middle, middle yeah, shops I, are going to have I a rough time. There. You wanted want, names. <laughs> yeah. So you're arguing that this is e-commerce is going to be more like a barbell. They're going to be the big guys mm-hmm. and the little guys mm-hmm. and in the middle you, you go out of business. I think so. Well, and, and let me, let me hedge that with saying yes, except if you have something proprietary. I think if you, if you have a, a proprietary business or a proprietary product and you, you, know, you sell it direct to consumers and it has huge appeal, like it's got a very large market reach, I don't know, maybe you, you revolutionize 
the hairdryer for some reason. I mean, there's a huge market for that. But I think those are going to be the, I think those businesses are going to be far and in between. Right. Because your other key word in there was generalist. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's not just, it's not the size that's the issue. I would say it's more the generalist nature. Yeah. Right? Agreed. Yet people that just, you know, kind of just online bazaars that sell everything. It's, you're going to, you're going to, I mean, how do you compete with Amazon? Even Rakuten, which is kind of like a big beast trying to do this, right? They bought buy.com and I don't think that deal went well for them. Do you, Rakuten, that, is that the, uh, I, I've heard They're about them. Asia. They're yeah, out of China. Can you, can you give me, cause I've heard about them a number of times and I know very little about them. Can you give like myself and everyone listening just a, like a 60 second primer on who they are and what they do? Yeah. I mean, they are a viable competitor to Amazon over there. They, they basically, they have a marketplace and they, but they are, this is based only on the CEO and his speech at internet retailer. This is what, so he, the way he set depicted it was that Amazon has an adversarial relationship with their, the people on their marketplace. In other words, if your marketplace store is hot, there's always the potential that Amazon will either, you know, reverse engineer your product or start selling it themselves. Right. So mm-hmm. whereas Rakuten is all about their small store owners, they, you know, they, they have a lot of educational uh, content to help the store owners get up to speed. You know, the margin structure is much more, or your commission structure is much more beneficial to the small store owner. So I think that that's sort of how they made their name. And to come into the U.S. market, they bought buy.com. And I think they're trying to do the same thing here. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's working. So do they, do they sell things directly or are they just a marketplace for, for other people that sell their goods? I believe they're just a marketplace. Marketplace. Okay. Interesting. Thanks. That's, but I'm sure people will like, light up the comments of this <laughs> if I was wrong there. Um, That's right. And the, uh, the URL for this is going to be bold predictions, all one word, ecommercefuel.com, bold predictions. Yeah. So head over there, please. I'd love to hear what you think. And, and, I, uh, and Drew and I will be in there engaging with you. I'm thinking of other, you know, I had a friend who ran eBags. eBags just had like, even they had a heck of a time. And I think their issue, they, the one thing that was doing well for eBags was their proprietary product, which they just launched over the past year or two. Otherwise, they're retailing other people's bags. It was a category play. Mm-hmm. And really, margins kind of going to zero as the manufacturers start going, to dire- going direct themselves. And, you know, and that was a big company. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I agree. Yeah. I agree. I agree with that bold prediction. Bold prediction number four, and this is yours, Drew. The cost of running and operating a store will go to zero. Yeah. And I, I don't even know if that's bold anymore. It just seems sort of obvious that when I started my store in 03, it maybe would have cost 50K to, to build out your own platform. And now it's, you know, a couple hundred bucks, maybe a couple thousand bucks if you need design work too, right? Mm-hmm. To Shopify and just, and just go. And so what if that trend, you know, that trend will continue, right? People are trying to transaction enable Twitter now. There's a head of e-commerce there. Transaction enable blogs. Uh, I think it's just going to become easier and easier if you've got a blog or you've got any sort of website to to start selling product. And so I guess maybe what's bold about that is sort of like, what does that mean for everybody? That, you know, 10 years ago, the differentiator was in part that you could set up a store and start selling online. You know, and I know in the modern design space, we were one of the first because nobody did it. It's just sort of like, okay, these guys know enough to 
start selling online, that's a key differentiator. But today that isn't anymore. You just got to assume that anyone can set up a store. Yeah, it's, it'll be interesting. You think about you think about blogs, right? And you could go, you can, you can go today, just go to blogger.com and get a free hosted blog. And, and obviously stuff like Shopify and BigCommerce, they have hosted plans. I wonder if we're going to see something in, in, in the next year or two where you can actually set up a SaaS store, uh, a hosted store that sells your own stuff that's ad supported or that just is purely based on a percent of revenue uh, or something where it, you truly have a zero, you know, zero cost of, of running a store like that. That'd be interesting. I've seen it happen in niches, like in the fashion niche, there was a site called Style Shopper or something like that. I don't think it, it, it went out of business, but what they did was just, they went into Commission Junction, pulled affiliate products, created a giant database of these products, and then went to teenage girls and were like, set up your own store. It's pretty much plug and play. And they were just getting tons of these girls setting up their own stores and <laughs> merchandising their own fashion products. It was doing pretty well too. That's interesting. It's an interesting model. Bold prediction. What number one, one, two, three, four. Bold prediction. Number five, suburban malls won't meaningfully be around in 2025. So I'm gonna take a little longer time horizon on this one. A really interesting article in the New York times. We'll try to link up to about, about just the, the state of suburban strip malls. And I was at a I was watching a movie at, at the theater with, with a buddy maybe three months ago and it showed up on a Friday night at like seven o'clock and I'm not sure if we just, we're, we're in a bad movie or just in between show times, but it was just nobody was there. It really surprised me. And Or that you lived in Great Falls, Montana. Bozeman, Montana. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that might be, be hey man, we've got, we've got at least 1500 people in this town, you know, and <laughs> that's what everyone does on the weekend. No, uh, that could have been it too, but those uh-huh. been won't be around in, in twenty twenty five. Ooh, ooh, man! We're gonna do. You know what we need to do? We uh, we need to have a follow up episode here where we do New York City versus Bozeman, Montana, rural versus the uh, the urban. That'll be a fun one. You up yeah, for that? I, yeah, I am. Okay, but I like th- I like this prediction because I feel like the other ones we're all sa- we're basically saying the same thing. Those yeah. all, <laughs> other than the sales tax one, two, yep. three, and four. I think are different ways to look at the same issue, but yeah. this is kind of interesting. And I'm, I'm with you. I mean, this was malls were such a big part of how I grew up, you know, I'm 40 and I, it's like, you just hung out at the mall, right? You went to the movies at the mall, uh, you know, fast times at Richmond high, they hung out in the mall. It's just like part of how we grew up. And I go back to those same malls today when I go home and, and, you know, visit my mom and they're just, they are not the malls as I remember them. Yeah. I mean, it's just a lot of vacancy. Um, you see a lot of like the, you know, the Sobrero's pizza that is just, I don't know, they've got some lockdown on every food right. court in America and the mall, you know, those guys I think are struggling to filed for bankruptcy n- numerous times. And, um, I, yeah, I think it's a combination of e-commerce on one end and then they just maybe a change in culture. So plus you've got big companies like Sears and JC Penney, which, are going to be in, you know, what, 80 plus percent of both of those you know, of malls uh, across America. And those guys are struggling. And so, yeah, I don't know. It'll be interesting. I, uh, I made a bet with my buddy at the movies. I said, you know, I'll bet you 20 bucks that in 10 years from now, this movie theater is not here and we can't come to, you know, we can't, we can't, can't come out and do this. So I don't know. It'll be interesting. Interesting to see, see what happens. And that, there. that might be the one thing in the mall that I would guess would still have some appeal would be going to see a movie. It would yeah, just because you can, you know, there is something to be said for seeing it on a large screen. It's yeah. kind of cool. So that's, um, 
I, I would think there's also, you know, it's not only just the rise of e-commerce, but I think it's the rise of Walmart here. And when you think of the people who go to a mall to shop, um, I'm guessing that socioeconomically they are, they are, you know, maybe that's skewing lower. And then that clientele might go to Walmart now, mm -hmm. right? So, and Walmart is offering more and more of the stuff that you would go to a mall for. So, Again, you've got, you probably have this barbell where, you know, if you live in a city or if you live in a suburb and, and you're, you know, making a lot of money, then you order everything online. Whereas if you, you know, if you used to shop at JCPenney or if you used to shop at any, like any of those mall brand places, you're now going to Walmart instead because they're just more convenient. Yeah. I think that's interesting. I think that's that's a great insight. And I, it's funny, I was talking to my brother in Cincinnati and he talking about malls there. And he said there's, because we were talking about this issue too, and they have one really popular mall that's doing fantastically well. It was out there and we went and visited it and it's got like a Tesla, you know, a little Tesla store. It's got the Apple store, all the high-end stuff. And it's it's always packed. You know, it's, it's doing great, but it's got a much higher end kind of a focus on experience and designer brand names and things. And then, but I think a lot of the other malls that you see, because every large community or uh, metro area is going to have, you know, a lot of these, especially in the suburban areas. And I think it's really those, those kind of general malls that aren't well known that are just kind of don't have, you know, nothing really. They're just kind of your standard run of the mill mall. I think those are the ones that are, that are really struggling. And I was thinking, Drew, I don't know how you think about this, but this sounds terrible, but was thinking about how could you, <laughs> it's going to sound really terrible. How could you profit from like the decline of the implosion of, of strip malls across America? Like, could you, I think you just short, you know, not REITs, but you short, uh, whatever the mall equivalent of a REIT is. They exist. They do. Right? Yeah. Hmm. That's interesting. So they just own, they're, they're like, really like an ETF for malls, but yeah, I'm sure you could find that and short it. Okay. Hmm. We won't mention any names in case anyone actually acts on our advice and loses a ton of money. <laughs> in trouble. I think the, and there are systemic things here. There's like the decline of the dollar. There's a whole bunch of stuff that are sort of leading, leading to malls, like going down and being bad investments. Yeah. But I'm more curious to see what, you know, what would people do with all these? I'm thinking of the Hanover mall in Hanover, Massachusetts was kind of the one we went to. And it's like, it's nothing now. Yeah. There's nothing there. It might be half empty. So what do you do with that? I've heard of, I've heard of churches, buying like enormous open mall space. I heard that once. I don't know, maybe roller derby will make a comeback. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> a lot of stuff you can do. Prediction number six, e-commerce will merge with social uh, in terms of peer-to-peer -peer selling. What do you mean by that, Drew? I think this is kind of, you know, I'm always on the lookout for a new channel because it, a new marketing channel because I think that's where a lot of money can be made. And if you look at the past... 10 years online, maybe the first, you know, one of the first big channels was probably AdWords. And when it first came out, it was dirt cheap to take out an ad. And you could, there were businesses that were built on that inefficiency, right? That you could just drive a lot of cheap traffic and make money. And today, I don't think you can, you know, I'm generalizing, but I don't think you can do that on AdWords as easily anymore. It's just, it's much more, uh, the cost per acquisition is much more expensive and it's just becoming harder and harder to, to make money off that channel. Uh, but there have been the rise of separate channels, for example, Facebook, right? And now there are a whole slew of e-commerce businesses that have made money off the Facebook channel. I'm thinking like PetFlow here in New York, which is 
that might, you know, social might be their primary source of acquisition. And certainly there have been a ton of content businesses like Viral Nova and Distractify and, and Upworthy that are all sort of built off that, that Facebook channel. But I think there we are sort of at the tail end of, of that channel being inefficient. You know, every, like the, the ad rates are going up and, and people are just becoming a little bit more burned out on the whole content play. And so I'm, I'm thinking like, what's the next big channel that's going to come, uh, that's going to come out of nowhere and sort of be inefficient. And it might be peer to peer. And I look at brands like the, the honest company, which sells with, uh, Jessica Alba and this guy, Niels, uh, Niels Johnson, who's a VC who just backed all the, the Lish brands like beauty Lish and a bunch like that, that are all celebrity based. And I'm kind of thinking that peer to peer or celebrity might be the next big channel. In other words, getting friends to sell to friends uh, or getting or selling through celebrities. So, so how would that, how would that work exactly? Let's say you were going to sell me, um, let's say you still had design public and you had this, this, you know, super plush leather, leather couch. How, How would that, how would that work? Would it be, it's, it just makes it easier for people to set up individual stores on their Facebook account or how, well, how would I that think work? More of like Stella and dot, which is a jewelry company. And they came out with a line of jewelry and sold it on the, you know, on the woman to woman model, multi-level marketing, whatever you want to call that. And I think they just enabled that through um, it, it's, it's much easier to do it now than it was with the Tupperware parties in the seventies. And I mean, they just had explosive growth through that sales model. So I think there are a lot of brands, particularly in the health space that are growing through that sort of multi-level approach. Hmm, So it's like Mary Kay stuff, but every, every rep now has their own little customized website that they can guilt you into buying from because you're friends with them. Right. Right. So, (laughs) yeah. So I mean, maybe it's not that everybody has their own website, but certainly that you can use, you know, you can find these social influencers and sell through them. I see. Okay. Got it. Interesting. Interesting. And, it, it, and it's not, obviously, it wouldn't apply to every niche. Trolling motors, for example. Right channel radios. I don't, I don't know. know. I mean, maybe there are celebrities in those niches. Oh, but. there's 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 big time celebrities in the fishing niche. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, you're, yeah I guess you're right. Yeah. Um, what do you think of that? I, I don't know. I'm having a, I'm having a hard time kind of seeing how it, it, I can kind of see what you're saying, like, you know, kind of the multi-level marketing, kind of facilitating that a little bit more easily, but, but I, I don't necessarily see how I'm having a hard time seeing how it would really differ from how it could take off or how it would differ really from, from kind of traditional sales where somebody just posts a, um, post a picture, let's say, you know, that couch, for example, just post a link to the couch and then you go through and buy it either on Amazon or buy it, buy it directly or affiliate marketing. I guess you could do the same thing because there's the opportunity for people to promote products right. with Amazon affiliate links. So I guess tech, I just, I'm just trying to see how, understand technically how it would differ from kind of either the affiliate model or just the referral model we have now. Right, right. Um, I guess I'm predicting that it just becomes bigger. Bigger. Okay. Got it. You know, the whole, like everyone is a merchant. Um, but yeah, so maybe it's not that bold. Yeah. (laughs) Well, let me ask you this. There's, here's, we've got a, we got one more on the list, but a couple that just came to me. What do you think about, you know, this merging of online and offline? Like I know I had, you know, I had a chat with Harley over at Shopify and we kind of took slightly different sides to how important kind of the, 
because that Shopify is really moving towards kind of they don't want to necessarily be just e-commerce or offline commerce. They want to be just commerce in general. They want to be able to blend those, which I think is a good way to go. But I think there's differing opinions on how important and how prevalent blending those two experiences is going to be in the future. And there was actually, there was finally a story I heard this week where, where somebody who went into a shop uh, had a lot of carryover between their online and offline experience. For example, they you know, they came into the shop and, and uh, the people uh, knew what they had been shopping on, I think, based on their shopping cart. And then they called them on the phone later to follow up when something went on sale. And, and it was actually kind of compelling. But I've heard very few stories where that actually is, is something that I can see working long term versus just kind of being a buzzy, trendy thing. What do you think about that? I think it's I think it's long term and I don't, I don't think it's trendy. I think people have tried to make it trendy and it doesn't really work when it's trendy. But um, I am seeing more and more. I mean, you brought up Shopify and, and just their their latest rollout of like their um, their point of sale system that works really well with mm-hmm. the, the e-commerce site. Like it's just I see a lot of merchants going to that. And in our consulting for e-commerce retailers, we're seeing more and more of just these vertically integrated brands who have a storefront and are doing really well online. Yeah. And I I can see, I guess, I guess for me, I I see having both channels, I guess I am just trying to see where, where the blending of those, uh, you know, where, where, where you bring your smartphone in and you, you have the, the carryover, I guess, between I have using technology in person in store to also, you know, kind of transcend your experiences. So when you go home, it's, it's an integrated experience. I guess that, I guess for me, that is what I'm trying to, to see how that works. And I, and I think it's possible. I think there are definitely some applications. I just haven't seen a whole lot of them be illustrated in ways where I just go, wow, yes, that would be really helpful to me, or I can really see yeah. that being beneficial. So, yeah. yeah, you're right. They're pretty much like little gimmicks now. Walk yeah. into a store, get an alert on an iPhone or something, and I just don't find, I don't find that those kind of companies are, if they haven't thought through customer acquisition, like I don't see a lot of, cust- of people using those devices in anything more than like a gimmicky way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's nothing compelling. Like they've got to really fit into user behavior. And when I'm shopping in a store, I'm sort of shopping in the store. When I'm online, I'm online. So I don't know that it's going to be, I don't know. That's one I'd have to think about. Yeah, it's a tough one. All right, here's a surprise. <laughs> we, we just, just made it look really crappy production. Hey, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> Drew's like, thanks for, thanks for slipping these in off the cuff. Appreciate it. You get there's three nothing. that are exactly the same, and then you give me a curveball halfway through. I'm never coming on this podcast again. Nothing actionable about that one. It's just, this may happen. Speaking, speaking, of, bold, <laughs> so, speaking of bold predictions, how's, how's this for a bold prediction? There's a 10% chance that Bitcoin will take over the transactional payment space in the next 10 years. What do you think about that? You think that's a high or a low, low figure? I think it's a little high. Ooh, a little high. Okay. The, I mean, it's just, ah, it's so interesting. It's, and I know a lot of VCs are betting Jeremy Liu at Lightspeed is betting on Bitcoin and, or or just, they, they find it appealing, not because they believe in it, but because it, if it, if it wins, it wins so big that it justifies the risk. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of forces that sort of suggest that, you know, uh, that put the wind at its back, right? Like if, 
if the government does have to raise taxes, you know, the appeal of Bitcoin, like all the gold nuts who believe that gold is appealing because it's outside the system, it can't be taxed, all this other stuff like that all applies to Bitcoin and yet it's in a much more transactable form. So I don't know. I mean, what, what would cause people to shift en masse over to Bitcoin? Would it have to be like another financial crisis or, or something like that? Yeah, that's a good question. A couple things. I think one thing is if, if you take a really you know, doomsday scenario, you think about capital controls, like when companies really, I kind of mentioned this in a, in a previous solo podcast that I either, I'm not sure when it'll air, but me talking about financial stuff, but uh, a book called Street Smarts by Jim Rogers. I think you'd really like it, Drew. Kind of talks yeah. about uh, oh, you have read it. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Awesome. You, I mean, you know the background of this. So, I mean, countries, when they start having a lot of problems, a lot of times they'll have, they'll, they'll implement uh, capital constraints and keeping money in the country and you can't get your money out. And with Bitcoin, that's not an issue, right? Yeah. You can, I mean, it's, it, you just move it anyway. It, it, it's, it, you know, country agnostic. I don't know if that's the right term. So I could see a lot of money going to, into Bitcoin if, uh, if that was the case. What other reasons you could see? It is tough. I mean, it's, it's such a, it's such a low probability, but such a high outcome. Like you mentioned, the, the, the ruling with the IRS was interesting. And I thought it was pretty smart on their end. Cause I think, you know, if you want to be, if you, if the U S want to discourage the use of Bitcoin, make it really hard to use as a currency. And you can't really, I mean, you could out a lot, but that would cause problems. But I think the way they ruled was that it's not a currency. It's like a commodity. And so you have to pay capital gains every time you make a transaction with it. Yeah, which is just—I mean—it makes it so much. It makes like a it, coin. It, yeah, it makes it so much harder to transact with uh, unless you have something like Coinbase that's going to track all that automatically. But if you want to stay on the legal side of things, so I don't know. I'm kind of with you. I think that. Do you own any Bitcoin? I own one Bitcoin. You own. <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. Was it? Um, that's my hedge. That's your hedge. Yeah, I'm kind of. Yeah. I'm kind of in the same boat as you. I own a very small amount in the case it just blows up. So, so we'll see. All right, let's, let's finish things off with something that's slightly more bold than a 10% chance of something happening. Uh, final bold prediction, personalized home and product pages will become commonplace in the next five to 10 years. You, you think about, I was talking with Sam over at HubSpot and in a, in a different uh, interview for the podcast and we kind of touched on this, but you think about, you think about home pages now and for the most part, they're pretty static. You know, uh, there's a little bit of customization going on, but for the most part, they're static. You, you use a navigation bar to find what, what, the, what you want. And I think in the next, you know, the next five to 10 years, we're going to see not only consumers or, or businesses maybe make better use of cookies within one site, but I think across sites, uh, there's something called, I think Google is working on a universal cookie. And I think there's going to be the ability, probably to the chagrin of, of privacy advocates everywhere, somebody lands on your site and you know immediately a lot more about them. Uh, you know demographic information, interest information. Maybe you can pull that from Facebook. I'm not sure. But I, I think in terms of personalization, web e-commerce stores are going to be much more dynamic in being able to display a homepage for things that are much more likely for somebody to like. Like my CB radio page. If somebody comes to my CB radio page and they, I know they're, they're, they're 70 years old, well, the chances of them needing a CB radio for an RV versus, uh, versus a Jeep and not saying there aren't some, some folks in that age demographic that have Jeeps, but probably gonna be more statistically likely 
to, to one in RV CB radio. So having that automatically be on top and the same thing, same kind of things with, with product pages. I think we're going to see a lot more personalization dynamically happening. I, I love that one. I couldn't agree more. And I think there, you know, there are a lot of people working on that. Um, there's a company called Convertra, which just sold to AOL for a hundred million bucks. And they were able to do some, uh, it was all about marketing attribution. So tracking customers across not only online, but TV and radio. So obviously doing something that sort of transcends single site cookies. I think they did a lot of that with the use of like behavior and some other geolocational things, but definitely going in that direction of like a universal cookie. There's this guy, uh, I think his name's Joseph Carabas, who wrote a book. He was a sociologist who wrote a book about behavior. And he built a behavioral tool that can identify users, apparently can identify users across websites without cookies. And even after 10 minutes on a single website, the tool would tell you like what your job was. You know? So it was, <laughs> it was all based on uh, where the mouse went. And that kind of stuff is really, I think it's, it's really interesting. There are a couple companies out there that are thinking about this sort of thing right now. And you know, the, the money is definitely there. Your, mon- your ROI on any sort of segmentation and targeting is usually really, really good. So I think it will, it will happen. That's a good prediction. How, when you say you're able to determine what somebody's job is based on their mouse movements, how is that even possible? Uh, you'd have to ask Joseph. <laughs> <laughs> that just seems crazy. My, I was talking to my brother, and, and we were, he told me about some kind of technology that can identify you. Yeah, everyone has a fingerprint, of course. But there's security technology and licensing technology that exists that can identify somebody based on how they type. You know, so everyone has different typing habits. Maybe it's how quickly you, you go between an A and an S or, or how much you delete. Anyway, whatever, you have a unique fingerprint with the way you interact with a computer via a mouse and a keyboard. And it totally has nothing to do with a bold prediction for e-commerce, but just reminded me of what you said with the mouse tracking. I thought it was interesting. Wow, that is cool. Yeah. Great, Drew. That, that, that is a bold prediction. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, so there it is. Uh, I guess seven, seven bold and quasi weenie predictions plus two that Andrew sprung in the middle, <laughs> minus three that are, are very similar to to wrap things up. Drew, thanks so much, man. It's it's fun as always uh, spitballing this stuff with you. We'll both keep our fingers crossed for a, a stratospheric rise in, in Bitcoin's price. That sounds good. Awesome. Thanks, man. It. Thanks, Andrew. That's going to do it for this week. But if you're interested in launching your own e-commerce store, download my free 55-page ebook on niche selection and getting started. And if you're a bit more experienced, look into the e-commerce fuel private forum. It's a vetted community for store owners with at least 4,000 monthly sales or industry professionals with at least a year or more experience in the e-commerce space. You can learn more about both the ebook and the form at ecommercefuel.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I'm looking forward to seeing you again next Friday.